Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. So it's been a long break, Jake, since we've uh, recorded, feeling a bit rusty. We've had a month off. We've never done that before. No, we haven't. We haven't. So look, it's nice to come back with with, with fresh eyes and, and fresh, fresh ideas. How was your trip to Fiji? It was very nice, very warm. Uh, hotel was nice. Yeah. Food was average. But yeah, I could have told you that. And my children refused to go to the kids' club. Right. So, so basically, it was you, the daddy and mummy show again. So, so basically, <laughs> you were, you. It was like being at home, but you just paid to get on a plane and go Correct. somewhere else. Correct. <laughs> and and have the carnage in a smaller room without <laughs> toys to amuse them. <laughs> <laughs> Boys, uh, I love your comedy. We love our comedy. Well, we should reintroduce you, Bobby. We weren't weren't ready to to introduce you, but we will now. So we've got back on the podcast by, uh, I was going to say unpopular demand, but very popular demand. And we're joined by Mr. Bob Akmoyne. So if anyone doesn't know who Bob Akmoyne is, potentially people outside of Australia, I'm pretty sure anyone in this industry um, in Australia knows who Bobby is or Bob Ack. What would you prefer me to call you? Because we talk every day, I'll call you Bobby, but for the for the podcast, would you like me, would you like your why, formal why, name? Why don't you, Professor why don't you switch Moini. between the two? Right. <laughs> jump between the two. Right. Oh, no, nah, we're all friends here. Bobby. Yeah. Yeah, Bobby. So we uh, caught up, we've, we did an episode, we've done a couple of episodes with you now. One was with um, your former business partner, Alistair Champion, and he was the co-founder of Laser Clinics Australia with you, which was well founded back in 2009. So we had a, a discussion about that and how that business came about. We then had you back on the podcast um, in COVID times, and we were talking about the impact of COVID on the economy. And then we sort of drilled down particularly into this industry. Everyone was sort of predicting what was going to happen. I don't think anyone got it right. Um, but, no. But I mean, just to point the listeners yes. back to those episodes, this is a long time ago. It was, yes. So the first one with Bobby was episode 45. And if you don't know who Laser Clinics Australia are, they are certainly by now. I mean, they were big uh, when Bobak was still sort of um, the owner. But what, you, you left the business in 2017, Bobby? That is correct. Right. But it's, now... It's been, it's been five years and five weeks. Okay, fair. But now they're certainly the world's biggest, as we call them, chain clinic. Yeah. With, I think, close to 200 now. Well, yeah, they've obviously taken the footprint they had in Australia, which was vast. They now opened up uh, clinics in New Zealand. They've got a footprint over in the United Kingdom, North America, and I think Singapore as well. And there's probably Correct. aspirations to, to grow beyond that. So yeah, um, the purposes of having you back here today really was to talk about what's happening now with the economy, because a lot of what was happening during the COVID period, the, the world was essentially on hold and everyone was predicting what was going to happen when the dust settled and, and things returned to some kind of normality. But now we're at a point where a lot of what the governments did to try and uh, bolster the economy and keep things moving with government grants and so on um, is now coming home to roost. And um, Australia is probably one of the more insulated uh, countries in, in in the global economy when it comes to um, how we ended up or fared from COVID. But now we are catching up in terms of what's happening. We've seen inflation uh, reaching record levels. We've got interest rates moving up. 
Um, and I guess people, um, particularly in this industry, have some fears, some trepidation about what's coming down the line. And we thought who better to come back on and give us his words of wisdom and maybe some predictions and some hints and tips on how people can progress forward during what is likely to be um, quite a testing period for us all. Yeah. Would, that, would that be fair, Jake? No, definitely. <laughs> and and I thought it would be a good place to start, not to recap what we did two years ago. I think it was episode 59 where mm-hmm. we made some of those predictions. I think that was April 2020. Yeah. So we had just gone into lockdown mm-hmm. here in Australia and we were kind of like, well, it seemed pretty crazy at the time because yeah. we, we couldn't even believe there was a lockdown, let alone a virus and everything. Mm-hmm. But I, I think we, we predicted a lot of doom and gloom and bankruptcies for, for aesthetic clinics, because of course we were mm-hmm. hiding away and kind of, well, I mean, in a nice way, none of that really happened or, or, or not to any large extent, but at the same and, time. And in, and in fact, Jake, the opposite happened. Yeah. It was different to what pretty much every economist in the country thought the exact opposite happened. And the main reason for that was the gov- government stimulation. Yeah. When they basically gave money to people to stay at home and they couldn't travel mm. and they had nothing else to do but to spend money and the government kept giving them money. Yeah. And the number of businesses that in reality, in the ordinary course of events, would fail were propped up by the government. Yeah. But eventually everything catches up to you. And I think that's that's one of the purposes of today's discussion. Yeah. Well, to see where we're at now. Well, if we can ask David, because mm. David was going through that with four clinics, let alone yeah. one, in two different cities. And and I obviously remember the stress levels and mm-hmm. the the hundreds of chats we had. But what what was the reality, because you're, you're now out of the business, so yeah. maybe you can talk more freely as well. Yeah, well, was obviously certain things things I can't say, but but just at a high level, I mean, that period was very stressful. And I think that um, what the government did, I think, only delayed the inevitable of, what, of what's coming down the line. So we, we sort of sailed through the last sort of period of time a lot better than, than what we had all anticipated. Um, the challenges that we had, particularly around supply chain issues, so getting stock, the cost of stock going up, and staffing, so keeping the, the clinics running, having uh, enough people on board every day to service clients was a challenge because I think people, to a certain extent, became conditioned to not having to go to work, getting free money from the government. So it started to create um, a, almost a culture, uh, particularly in Australia, where it was very difficult to keep up with the demand because there was just people constantly away. Mm. A lot of it was legitimate people that had sick and we had all of the isolation rules um, that only just came, only just sort of uh, reverted in the last few days, really, um, which meant as soon as someone got sick, they were off for a period of time, which put yep. a huge amount of strain on businesses, particularly businesses that are quite labour intensive. So the clinics that I, were in, what I was involved in, you know, high patient numbers, high turnover, um, lots of people working furiously throughout the day. So when you've got those sort of um, constant interruptions of people not coming into work, it puts a huge amount of stress on the business. And then we saw the cost of all of our input costs going up. So all of your consumables, so things like bed sheets, razors, needles, all the sort of things that we need to complete the, the tasks that we need to do mm. became more expensive. So whilst business was busy, um, from my perspective, margins went down because of obviously staffing challenges and the cost of Produce of uh, servicing those patients went up. Yeah, and I mean, Bob, you, you've been out of sort of owning clinics for for quite a number of years now, but I know you're still sort of obviously abreast of it all. What do you see of that? Some of the key trends over the last couple of years. I mean, what do you think's changed since you were, you know, doing this, Jake? Um, the, the the two items that have changed more than anything else 
whether it's in the last two years or the last 12 years, is competition. Yeah. There is intense competition in the marketplace. Now, if I look around at any other industry, prices are rising. If I go to the local coffee shop, if I go to buy clothing, if I get a gym membership, for some reason in our industry, it appears to be that prices have been steady or possibly declining over the course of the last few years. Yeah. And the second thing that's happened, there's a shortage of staff. Then the third thing is the rents go have gone up. So the cost of retail space is more. The cost of staff, if you can get them, is more. Staff are now less productive because they know they can walk out and do another job. Mm -hmm. And then you've got this intense competition. Now, that competition has cost, has led to the cost of patient acquisition going through the roof. If I look back in the year 2010, the average client for a laser hair removal session would cost you around $5 per lead. Mm -hmm. Today, that's $50 a lead. But the costs for the treatment of services has stayed the same and or gone down. How do you work that figure out for, for for someone maybe owning a business and wondering, I wonder, I wonder what it costs me to get someone through the door? How, how do you work that figure out? Oh, look, uh, look at your variable costs. Look at your marketing costs in particular. Look at what percentage of your rental cost should be assigned to the retail portion of your business. Mm-hmm. Look at the direct, indirect cost you spend on marketing, advertising, branding then look at the number of customers, new customers that you get a week yeah. and basically divide one by the other. And that should give you the cost of pay, uh, client acquisition. Yeah. Uh, and when you mention competition, I, I guess you mean both from the number of clinics and brands, but also the number of products available. There's there's competition both externally and internally. It's, it's become a, I, I mean, for the patient, it's great. There's so much yeah. choice. But yeah. for the provider, yeah. it's difficult. It, it's a commodity now. Today, this is a commodity. If I look back on the early period of Laser Clinics Australia, when we opened a clinic in a shopping centre, whether it's Parramatta or Chatswood or Penrith, we were the only provider, not just in that shopping centre, we were effectively the only provider in that entire suburb. In fact, people would travel across town to go to our clinic in at Penrith, that come from across the mountains and that come to the clinic. However, what's happened now, the one provider has now become 21 providers Mm. and they're all fighting over the same turf. And what's happened is when laser, and I know I'm talking about laser hair removal, but when laser hair removal was new, no one had ever had this treatment before. So you had this pent up demand in the market. That demand after a period of, 10 years, 15 years, has been met. So that so a lot of the people who would have had their laser hair removal have already had it. Mm. You don't have that new market. In addition, look at what's happened to migration in the last couple of years. So there are now fewer people who are having the treatment compared to 10 years ago, but there are far more providers. Mm. Yeah. And I guess that inevitably leads to prices continuing to decrease as you sort of alluded to a few moments ago is that when you've got a number of providers all providing very similar services a similar experience 
for those patients. It's great for them because they're spoiled for choice. They've got options. Um, but for the businesses, and maybe maybe we can just talk generally across industry rather than talking about a, a specific provider. Sure. But I think that what I have noticed is that all of these sort of chain clinics um, are providing very similar, if not identical services. So if I walked into one of these businesses and I was colorblind, for example, I would be very uh, hard pressed to be able to tell the difference between these businesses because they effectively uh, carbon copies of one another with mild differences with similar pricing. And so I think from my perspective, and I'd be keen to hear your thoughts as well, uh, Bobak, is that um, when you're a patient and everyone has been marketing themselves on price. And this just doesn't apply to laser hair removal. This could apply to injectables as well for anyone listening. Oh, I, don't, I don't do hair. <laughs> it's, it's all basically, you know, we're talking about the same industry and patients that have hair removal also probably have injectables as well, is that when you don't have a, a point of differentiation or something special about your brand and your only lever to get patients in your door is to continue to discount, this is where we kind of have landed as an industry where you've got a lot of these similar businesses offering identical services and everyone has been fighting on price without trying to differentiate themselves in any other way. So I'd be keen to hear your thoughts on sort of overarching strategy for, for, the, for the chain clinics in the country and, and sort of where you think they may have gone wrong and, and I guess what you would do or what you would um, suggest to these businesses to start carving out a niche for themselves again or, or differentiating themselves from what currently exists in the marketplace. Yeah. We were the original discounting kings. Al and I, uh, Al being Alistair Champion, my founding business partner, just decided to undercut the market by a massive amount. So we were about 70% lower than the markets. Now, it took the market about four years to catch up to us. So we owned that entire space and we could just discount. Today, everyone is discounting. So the same strategy that was working up to five, six years ago no longer applies. If I look at pretty much every service provider in the industry, now it makes no difference in which segment of the market it is, but in every segment of the cosmetic market, it's based on discounting. And everyone's message is hurry last days, sale ends now, $40 for this treatment. Come and get your full body done for $89. And if you look at the prices they're selling it at, it is not possible. There are too many there are too many loss leaders. Mm. Everyone is discounting, and there has not been a significant provider out in the marketplace who says, I am now going to do this on the basis of service. I'm now going to increase my prices rather than charging $40 for a 15-minute treatment. I'm now going to be charging $70, but I'm going to make sure when my customer rings me, there's someone to pick up the phone. I'm going to make sure that the therapists who come and treat that patient have, a, have got a fair bit of experience. I'm going to ensure that there is a proper system of customer service from start to end. I want to make sure my brand stands out. What happens today in the marketplace? Everyone looks the same. And in particular, most of the clinics have the word laser in their name, and it's too hard to differentiate. Yeah. yeah. I, hold on, before you jump in, Jay, I just wanted to clarify a couple of concepts that you and I are very familiar with, but perhaps for the uninitiated in business, they don't understand what we're talking about. So the term loss leader, and then I'd also like you to talk about or talk to the term value proposition. And that was a term I learned from you many years ago, which has stuck in my head ever since you, you sort of explained it to me. So can you just, yeah. for, the, for the listeners, explain what those two concepts are? Yeah, so... 
when you have a loss leader, you sell a product at a lower cost than what it costs you to to provide that service. For instance, if it costs me in terms of my my actual cost of providing a service, if it costs me $50 and I sell that service at $40, on every treatment I'm losing $10. But I'm hoping that the client who comes in will go and buy something else. Mm-hmm. We'll go and buy another treatment. We'll go and buy another service. Now, the only strategy with that is you hope something will happen. And hope is not a proper business strategy. Yeah. In terms of providing a value proposition, Qantas charges more than Virgin. Virgin charges more than Jetstar. But consumers get different value by flying each of these airlines. Yeah. That's the reason they choose them. In our industry, it's been a race to the bottom, and it's been a race to see who can stay there the longest. There is not a single provider who says, I'm now going to put, I'm now going to provide exceptional value to the customer, which includes everything, including but not limited to price. Yeah. I was going to say that there might be listeners here thinking, oh, this is very chain specific. But I think that even your average independent injector, wherever you are in the world, feels that pressure to be cheap or or to at least compete with the cheaper clinics around them. Yeah. And I think what we're saying here quite clearly is that that cannot be a model for business anymore because prices have gone up, competition has increased. And so you have to do something different. You have yeah. to improve your service or experience or or your time that you give your your customer or something else. Yeah. And 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 in and in many ways once you start down that path, uh, and Bobak, jump in if you disagree, you want to add to this, is that once you start going down that discounting path, it becomes a very difficult um, proposition to sort of walk back from. It becomes a difficult situation. You almost create a rod for your own back because once you, it's sort of like, it's like get out of jail free card. You sort of, you, you sort of, you pull that lever, you get a flood of customers, but then what do you do next? How do you continue to get them coming in to spend more money with with you, whether it be on laser hair removal or injectables. When that is what you get known for, you also start to attract a certain type of clientele perhaps in, in some instances, and perhaps those aren't the clients or patients that you particularly want for your business. And you sort of find yourself in this, in this vicious cycle of having to continue to pull that lever because that's the only thing that you've got going for. It's the only strategy yeah. that you've thought of. So, I mean, what are your what are your thoughts on that? And I guess let's yeah. talk about injectables as well, because that is a, yeah. is becoming commoditized as well to a certain extent. David, you're spot on. So, the only strategy left, which is what many of the providers have been doing, is to put in additional treatments, additional services. As an example, they now have high end skin treatment machines that they've added to their repertoire. They've put in these fat freeze treatments. They've put in additional injectable treatments. Now, what's happened is clinics that were very specific, they were known to for doing one, two, or three things, are now providing six or seven different services. And rather than focusing on what they do best and providing good customer service and va- and a great value for money proposition on those services, in order to keep their top line up, they keep putting in additional treatments. Yeah. And in my opinion, that is not the right strategy. Yeah. Do, do and th- that will- I was going to say, do, do you think that they do that because they're 
I'm not talking about one clinic, but just generally a larger chain, they probably can't easily improve the quality because the teams are just too big. The clinics are too diverse. It's an easier option just to add more stuff yeah. and hope that it works. Jack, big clinics want to maintain their turnover. Yeah. Now, if your turnover per category is falling, your best scenario is to put in additional treatments so you keep the top line up. More source of and revenue, think, basically. Yep. So you need you need to keep the top line up. You need to keep the profitability up. Yeah. Yeah. And in the end, you will confuse your staff and your customers as to what it is that you exactly sell. Mm. Yeah. Now, Jake, I know if I come to you, I you, you provide one product, injectables, and that's what you're known for, and you do it very well. There's no confusion as to what it is you sell. Yeah. If you started selling a dozen different treatments, you could not charge the premium that you do. Yeah, yeah I agree. I mean, could I potentially distill that down into um, you can't be everything to everyone? Pick your niche. Pick it is. Pick what it is that you're best at. What you love doing. What you can do better than everyone else. And and stick to your guns to a certain extent. I mean, yes, price. To say that price doesn't matter would be naive and probably oversimplistic, um, or a bit of a reductionist view on on the way people think or the way that consumers go about spending their money. But it definitely isn't in most cases the number one thing that people look for 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 the overwhelming majority of people yeah so you know i talk to a lot of injectors now in, in the consulting that i do and, and a lot of the conversation that comes is, is what is my competition doing my prices are i can't i don't I, you know this whole concept of increasing their prices is, is very foreign they're very fearful of it and i'm having these conversations around well what is it that you do better than everyone else what is it that you provide that other people don't provide the service the conversation the, the rapport that you build with your patients the time that you take remembering things about them that are specific that make them feel like a patient and a friend rather than just a number mm. on a spreadsheet. And I think that that's where if the people who want to rise to the top of this industry need to change their mindset in stop trying to compete on price and find out, look inside yourself, look at this, why you're in this industry, what got you into it, what is it you're passionate about, what is it you do better than everyone else and price yourself accordingly. We must have said that on a yeah. hundred podcasts. Yeah. It's, it's about the X yeah. factor. Your, your injecting yeah. could be pretty average, but if people love you because you're so warm and caring and they feel respected by you, then they're going to come back. Yeah. What do you think about that, uh, Bobby? Uh, boys, tell me of one clinic that you know of, one significant clinic, whether they're an individual or a chain clinic, that's increased their prices in the last five years. Yeah. It just... Yeah, I, Jake, I just put, Jake, Jake just put up his hand for the for the people that aren't watching this. Yeah, and yeah. to clarify, that, actually, we, we did it. We, we hadn't done it in two years because um, we had a pandemic. Yeah, um, but you know, we 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 needed to. We we had to. It wasn't even a choice of we think we should. We we had to. Um, On a, uh, so Jake, give me one person other than yourself. Um, well, by the time this podcast is out, um, so I don't think this is sort of um, <laughs> hidden news. I know one of the big chains is actually putting up their prices. Yeah, and uh, not by a lot. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. no. I've seen, I've seen the price increase. That's a marginal price increase. It is, but which the- it's a marginal price increase. See, if I if I look at and I'll come back to laser hair removal, the average sell price of a laser hair removal treatment 
is around $50. The exact same treatment should be $80. Yeah. Now, if they're tinkering at the margins and going from $50 to $53, that's not a price increase. Yeah. No. And I don't and I don't know of a single main chain, a single mass provider yeah. that is in any way significantly increased their prices over the last five years. But, but can there, I, there's, I was going to add a spanner to the works. They still get very good prices from the providers where your average injector doesn't. So there is a slight different um, pressure on whether you're a large conglomerate or a individual injector. And, and that has anecdotally anyway, muddied the waters for years um, because it's almost like there's two playing fields. There's the chain uh, buying price, which, so they have a larger margin to play around with, and then there's me, my price. Mm. Um, so there is that as well. It's not, it's not the same rules for everyone is really what I'm saying. Eventually that catches up to the market. As you know, there are doctors who buy in who buy mass groups and sell off to the nurses. So the price differential has come down substantially over the years. Yeah. So the same, so it's not the same as what it was five years ago. But if you put if you put that aside, the cost of labor's gone up, the cost of marketing's gone up, the cost of um, rent has gone up. It's hard to get staff, it's hard to get experienced staff. So in spite of all the cost pressure, people are have not increased their prices to the level that they should. Yeah, yeah. The first time I got into the Botox industry, it was the year 1999-2000. At that point, the average price per unit of Botox, and this is before the GSD, was $25 a unit. Wow. And, and what would it be now, maybe? Today? It's eleven dollars a unit, right? Well, would that would that be about right? Yeah, yeah. 10, 10, 11, 11 depending on. So, yeah, some 10, places even cheaper depending on the, on the volume that you buy. Yeah. Yeah. So now, so that price, everything has gone up in that period of time. Everything has gone up, but the price has fallen. Now you can say why the price has fallen because the volume has gone up a hundred times over that period. Yeah. However, the volume increase that you saw, that crazy volume increase that you saw up to three years ago is not continuing. And what happens is now pretty much every fourth nurse I meet is an injector or wants to become an injector. Yeah. yeah. I look at, I, I speak to my friends who are GPs. They're saying, oh, we're tired of being GPs. We want to move into aesthetic medicine. I speak to emergency doctors who want to go into aesthetic medicine. So, and it seems to be the only the only shot in their locker is I'm not going to sell it at eleven dollars a unit. I'm going to sell it at nine dollars ninety. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to now sell it at nine dollars forty, or I'm going to make lips cheaper if you buy it at the same time. There has not been, there is not a single player in the market that is in any way thought about how do we properly increase our prices. Yeah, and how do we keep our nursing team on board? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if we just talk in sort of general terms about the industry, um, where do you think the next couple of years potentially is going to take us? And I know that we're only making sort of assumptions and, and, and guesses, educated guesses at best, but in terms of the competition, and we'll get into the specifics of inflation and 
what impact that has on businesses and how and how and why the mechanics of that work the way that they do. But what what is your view on where the industry is going from a competition perspective? Um, we've also got issues around compliance, and I talk to nurses all the time, fears mm. about rules changing, which may make it difficult or, yep. or, or not legal for them to inject. Yep. And so just I get a, a bird's eye view of where things are going and, and then perhaps some thoughts on what you would do if you were still in this industry and how you would sort of position yourself in the market and, and try to be as successful as possible. Yep. Um, many questions there. Let me yeah. see if I can just uh, go at them one at, one at a time. Firstly, I, I, I still have my pulse on the industry. I have a lot of friends who are still in the industry, a lot of colleagues. Now, there are at least 30% of the clinic salons that I know run at a loss. 30%? 30%, 30 And do you have but any when, idea what sort of what loss they're making a week? Is it a couple of percent or bigger it, than that? It, it, you're talking you're talking they're running either between zero to a three, four, five thousand dollar loss a week. Wow. Now that position is not sustainable in the long term. If you have a business that is losing money every week, it makes no sense to continue that business. Yeah. But there's this concept of sunk costs that many people don't understand. For instance, they go, but I've spent two hundred thousand dollars setting up this shop. And they're spending all their time and their efforts trying to save that $200,000 investment rather than realizing the clinic should not be there. They're better off doing something else. And for the first time in my lifetime, it's now better to be an employee than to be an employer. It's much easier. You can get a job anywhere with zero risk, have your standard nine to five, you get your holiday pay. You get your sick leave. Why take the risk? Mm. Why take the capital risk? Why take the economic risk to go and do your own business, particularly when there is so much competition? Now, in my opinion, about 30% of the clinics that are there should not be there. Mm. However, these are the 30% that heavily discount. And when that 30% heavily discount, it naturally has an impact on the other 70% of the market. And that's why I don't believe prices are going north at any time in a hurry, in spite of the high inflation rates. Yeah. And to be fair, when we were planning this podcast, you sort of jokingly said, oh, I don't want to mention the predictions that I made two years ago. But I think what you're saying is still true that those 30% of clinics that aren't doing well, they've just been propped up for two years by the stimulus payments, but they're not you know, profitable clinics, they, they probably yeah. will go. Uh, it's just a matter of time from what you're saying. So I don't think your predictions from a couple of years ago were wrong. It's just the timing was the wrong. Timing, the timing was wrong. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the timing was wrong. I, I still don't see the economics of having a business in which you've made a capital investment and you've likely got a personal guarantee on the, on the rents to keep going that business if it's losing money on a on a weekly basis, what's the point of having it open? Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I guess to sort of again sort of summarise out, the timing means that we've, we've all these artificial uh, prop up tactics that the gov- world governments have sort of rolled out have created a false economy. So you've got a lot of these businesses 
that are essentially zombies. They're dead, but they don't realize that they're dead yet. And as you said, Bob, what's driving that is people's um, drive to keep these businesses going because of what they have invested. So they're throwing effectively good money after bad. Would that be a fair yeah. summation? Um, and, and let me put it down in numbers for you, Dave. Sure. The, 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 the typical clinic, that's a one-person clinic, their break-even point is around, you know, but when I say one person, one, one individual owns it, they've got a couple of staff members, their break-even point is around eight, nine, ten, eleven thousand dollars $11,000 a week. When you look at a bigger clinic, they're more about thirteen to 15000 But when you look at the big chain clinics, their turnover to run at break-even is around twenty-five to thirty thousand a week. And, yeah. and just to sort of qualify that for people who don't understand, that's just to survive. They need yeah. thirty thousand dollars a week just to be even, just, no profit. Yeah, but by the time you pay your suppliers, you pay the GST, you pay your staff, you pay the landlords, you um, you invest in more equipment. There is there is very little left left. Yeah. yeah. Now, so they need to be turning over significantly more than that. Now, 30% of the clinics that I speak to are below the level they need to be. And I don't see any way that they can pull out of that. So, so those, I don't, sorry, those clinics that you speak to, obviously I gather some of them are friends, they're more than just colleagues. So correct. What, what do they think is going to happen? I mean, I know they're emotionally invested uh, and, and so yeah, on. Uh, but Yeah, I, I think as humans, we have this optimistic nature and it's always, oh, well, Christmas is coming. Oh, you know, it's going to be busy in January. We've got the sales on. Mm. Oh, we're putting in a new treatment. But fundamentally, don't underestimate the power of denial. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that they should not have their businesses open. Yeah. Okay. So for all those people that are listening going, okay, Bobak, that's great. Um, it all sounds doom and gloom, but what can I potentially do if I am one of these people that are in, in this space? I've got a clinic. I do want to survive. What would you be doing? What if, if you were sort of consulting these people or mentor, mentoring them through this process? And it doesn't necessarily have to apply to Australia because yeah. we do have people in similar, yeah. similar situations all across the world. What would you do in terms of looking at their business, how to make ev like instant evasive action to get them to a point where they're, they're back on track or having a business that potentially is sustainable into the future? If I could add to that very quickly because David has – been talking to me, you know, because your your business sort yeah. of mentorship that you've been doing yeah. with some of our listeners, mm. I think the problem is often they don't even realize they're not making a profit. Mm. That, that's half the problem. They don't yeah. understand their numbers or, Jake, or anything. You're, Jake, you're spot on. By the time people realize they're not making money, it's generally too late because they're not on top of their accounts on a daily basis because your taxation doesn't fall due sometimes up to two years after the pay, after the liability comes through. Now, they've got to make tax payments in respect of a period up to two years ago, and they suddenly realize, I don't have enough money. Mm. In reality, they should tuck that money aside. The number one thing people should do is be on top of their profit and loss statements. They should know whether the underlying business is profitable or not. Now, if the business is not profitable, if it is not a profitable business, can they turn it around quickly? Is this something that's fixable very quickly that they can get on top of, or will this business never survive? 
If there is nothing they can do to get the turnover up, then they should decide whether they should walk away from that. Yeah. 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 And I think you raised a good point. People are blissfully unaware of their financial position. And I think that, as you said, um, you need that is like one of the most important things that you need to be aware of is understanding. You don't have to have an MBA or a business degree to get your head around this sort of concept. And a lot of the time people will, yeah. enga- will engage an accountant, they do their tax once a year, and that is the extent of them delving into the financial status of their business. So yeah. whether it's engaging your accountant on a more regular basis or a consultant or a mentor that's someone that has an understanding of all of this, to start knowing where you are at every minute of the of, of the day, every day of the week in terms of how your clinic is performing, what metrics you need to sort of be measuring yourself against and what is your break even? What is your break even? What do you need to make every week to survive? Where is your money coming from? Where are your patients coming from? Yeah. Um, what are your most profitable treatments? Are there treatments that you're providing in your business that are not making money? Do you, as sort of Bobak alluded to um, earlier in the discussion, you can't be everything to everyone. What are you good at? What can you do efficiently? What can you do better than everyone else? What can you deliver at a price that makes it profitable for your business? Yeah. It's kind of where my head goes to when I'm hearing what you're saying, Bobak. Um, Dave, I think that's a, that, that is a good summary. Yeah. If you're going to be in business, you need to understand every aspect of your business there's no point in just being a great Botox injector. You need to know whether when you're doing the injection, is that a profitable client for you? Yeah. Is that a profitable profitable segment for you? And I do meet a lot of people in this industry who are very passionate and very good at their actual craft, but they don't understand finance. They don't understand business. And they don't understand the legal framework in which they work. Yeah. Yeah, very true. And I, and I have to say, you know, I've, I've probably been in that uh, category at least a number of years yeah. ago. I'm learning and I'm still learning. But I think a lot of injectors find that hard to square because as soon as we start talking about profit and business, it doesn't sit right with them as a medical practitioner because they think there's this ethical um, pedestal in, that they have me- to stay in on. Medicine, Money is a dirty word. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but but at the end of the day, we are running businesses. So I, I think it's naive to yeah. to just ring fence yourself and say I'm a doctor, I'm yeah. a nurse. I, I don't deal yeah. with that. You, you have to. Yeah, uh, it's the commercial reality. We're selling product that costs hundreds of dollars for us to have in our shelves, and if we don't understand what we're doing that and what the patient's paying us, it's it's yeah, it's pointless. And I, and I think what's happened, Bobak, and, and maybe let's just talk about this a little bit, is that we've been in a period over the last, let's call it, you know, 10, 15 years, potentially even more, where borrowing money has essentially been free. We've had an expanding uh, market with almost, and uh, we couldn't keep up with demand with the number of people that wanted treatments. Mm. And now we've reached a point, well, sorry, I'll, I'll backpedal a little bit. And as a result, people have just thought to themselves, oh, this looks easy. I'm going to open up my own business. And they start off without any sort of planning, without any sort of exit strategy or end goal in mind, because it's almost been a no-brainer and very easy to start up a business and make money. And now we are seeing, and we'll get onto inflation in a second, because of all of the um, results of the pandemic and COVID and the lockdowns, have now caused the economy to shift in a significant way over a relatively short space of time. And you're going to see a reckoning um, or an adjustment, or you might even call it a consolidation in this industry because there's people that have effectively come in 
and been successful, not as a result of their financial and uh, business prowess. It's almost been because the conditions have made it so that anyone can yeah, be successful. Everyone, everyone up to four years ago was in the right place at the right time. Yeah, Everyone made money until then. Eventually. So go back 15 years ago, 20 years ago, there were only across the country 50 providers. Mm. Today there are 5,000 providers. So it's now become an efficient industry. And there has to be some form of cons consolidation. There has to be some form of adjustment, some sort of reckoning in terms of in terms of the industry consolidating. Yeah. Because there are too many, there are too many providers providing too many of, of the exact same service, and it's all going on the basis of price. Now, one of the issues is and um, is that doctors and nurses tend not to like to work for others. They would like to work for themselves. So the issue of consolidation in this industry becomes monumentally harder because you can't get five doctors to work in the same practice together because you can't have five gods in one building. <laughs> yeah. Damn right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Actually, I was going to say, I, th I think there's also a perfect storm that, that has happened post-COVID. We had that crazy, probably year, mm. where where sales and, and demand just went absolutely bananas. So even your maybe less well-performing clinics were doing really well for a period of time. Plus, you had all these um, medical professionals who effectively were burnt out in, in the medical system saying, hey, I want to get involved in aesthetics, and some of them have. And so you've got way more providers, and now the demand has you know, told back to normal, plus now this financial crisis that's looming. It's a bit of a perfect storm, I think. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't want to be all doom and gloom. I know that I've said 30% of the clinics I know do not run out of profits below break-even points, but 30% of the clinics on the other end of the scale have got – what I would call an incredible turnover. Mm. I know a lot of clinics that are turning over more than $80,000 a week. Wow. And at that level, they've got a profit of about $20,000, $25,000 a week. Yeah. And there are, there, are, there are a significant number of clinics in the country, and many of them part of chain clinics that have got that sort of turnover. I know, and I know many individual nurses. I know many individual doctors who've got a turnover around 60 to 80,000 a week yeah. and they're making they're making a lot more money than they would in the alternative of course the, yeah but the people who who have a history who have been around in the industry for a while they've got a patient base they treat their patient base very well they've got simple marketing they've got great branding they will continue to thrive and yep. the more they the more they sell, the lower the prices that they get from the pharmaceutical companies, the greater their margin. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, the the, the market is is still growing. It, it it is maybe not exponential, but it's definitely growing year on year. It's just that there are too many providers still, and so the weaker ones yep. presumably will will fall off. It's going to be survival of the fittest. Yeah. As it always is. Yeah. So let's talk about inflation and interest rates because those are two things that we hear about 
over and over again in the media at the moment with the news reporting on the on what's happening with the world economy and we've got shortages of um, commodities all around the world at the moment. So what is inflation, Bob, and how does it impact businesses? And then we can sort of tie that into interest rates and how that, they have that sort of relationship with one another. Yeah. yeah. Inflation is basically the rate at which prices rise. If you buy a cup of coffee for $3 one, one year and it becomes $3.20 the next year, that increase in price is called inflation. Now, inflation for the last 20 years has been running between 2 to 3%. Suddenly, it's dropped. It's gone through the roof. And you've got countries, Western countries, where it's now more than 10%. In Australia, we're running at about 7 to 8% underlying inflation rates. Ordinarily, I would be very concerned about rising inflation and rising interest rates. Mm. I don't have a concern for either one of those when it comes to the aesthetic industry because we are still in full employment. The issue becomes when people don't have jobs or they think they're going to lose their jobs. So I haven't seen any evidence of people significantly reducing their expenditure because they still have jobs. And it does not appear to me that there is any circumstance where that full employment is going to change. Now, the issue with the higher inflation, higher interest rates is that it costs people more money to live. So they go to the supermarket, that basket of goods that they bought is going to cost them more. Therefore, they have less discretionary spending. Now, I have not seen evidence of that having an impact on our industry yet. And be, and the main reason for that is there are still more people having these treatments than they were before. Even if their average cost of spend is less, there's still more people having it. Therefore, I don't see the impact of inflation or interest rates on our industry. The main issue I see is the competitive pressure on prices and the cost of goods for service providers going up. Could, can I ask both of you, maybe forgetting aesthetics, but just general spending, I'll start with mm -hmm. David. You know, if I go on YouTube, there are doom and gloom videos everywhere. China's going to crash tomorrow. America's going to go into a recession in the next month or two. It's going to be the worst Christmas ever. And yet you walk around the shops and, and, and speak to people and everyone's still spending money as if nothing's happening. So what's the reality that you see? Uh, I think, well, the places that, that you and I live and, and Bobak live, this, it's not truly representative of the rest of the country. So I think that, first of all, the places that we're seeing that people we're talking to are probably in the more affluent of course. Uh, of course, demographics of this country. And so I think that we've probably got some sort of what perception of what's actually going out there for your average household with a couple of kids and a mortgage mm. and, and two sort of regular nine to five jobs. So I think that's the first thing to sort of recognize and, and understand and appreciate. Um, I think secondly, as, as Bob Ack alluded to, this industry um, in general is a lot more resistant than other industries. People are uh, in, in, I guess, for lack of a better term, addicted, addicted to these treatments. Um, if they're not going on overseas holidays or buying new cars or buying a new house, they're, they're sort of spending money on themselves more than spending money on big expensive trips overseas or those sort of large, large acquisitions. So I think there's that going on. And I think in some ways, you know, as human beings, we're drawn to bad news. You never turn on the media, you never turn the, the news on and see something positive. 
it's always <laughs> negative. I mean, at the end of it, you might see some, you know, some cat got rescued from a tree. Oh, yeah, that's great. But in terms of like good news, the media doesn't portray good news because good news doesn't sell. As human beings, we're drawn to negativity. I think it's probably a survival mechanism. So I think yeah. there's, there is an element of that as well. Um, and I think there is probably a lag time um, when the, these new negative news stories start to come and people start to feel the pinch. It does take a period of time for those things to flow through to the entire economy until you start seeing um, people starting to be affected on a daily basis. What do you, what do you think, Bobat? Dan, I think you've summarized it very well, particularly on the bad news aspect. We're, we're drawn to bad news. That, that's, in our, that's in our nature. That, so I agree with what you've said there. I mean, there is some reality to it. I mean, if you look at the UK, where, you know, where I'm from, it does seem insane what some of the things that are happening. Like mm -hmm. the government have effectively announced a tax cut for, for everyone, despite that it's not even budget time. And the Bank of England have had to step in because of the loss of confidence in the government um, because they won't have any money. If they don't take any money through tax, they'll, they'll have no money. And that devalues the, the value of the pound, which means the financial centre of Europe is at risk and so on. So some of this is real. So, 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 so basically, England was being run the same way as 30% of the clinics of the country are being run. <laughs> yes. Being run below break-even. Discounts. Time. And eventually it caught up to them. They had to adjust. They had to adjust. And um, the market caught up with them. Um, the main reason that I don't have a concern is because of fully, full employment. Yeah. And try getting... Try getting a plumber to come to your home. Try getting a tiler. Try getting an electrician. Try to get a handyman to come to your home. Try uh, Walk up and down the shops. You'll see signs saying, uh, you know, ca cafe help needed, barista needed, uh, retail stores, positions available, apply within. So there is just a shortage of workers. Therefore, I don't see the major impacts on spending coming through as a result of lack of consumer spending. So, so, so what's driving that? Because you're absolutely right. We can't get any sort of help mm. with, with anything. There's just no availability. No. Is that still because of... Jack, the, my, migration is the key reason. Right. My, uh, migration. We haven't had migration for about... We haven't had proper migration for about two and a half years. And a lot of the migrants that were here during COVID, they went yeah. to never come back. Mm. Yeah. Well, that makes it difficult, doesn't it? I mean, if you've got a large percentage of your labor force effectively vanishing from the industry, um, it automatically creates a supply and demand issue. But, but I mean, yeah. our, our doors have been open for coming up to a year. I think it was last or this January we, we, we opened the... No, I, yeah, the doors have not properly been open. Right. It, it's, and there's always a lag time. Yeah. It, 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 there's always a lag. Yeah. Okay. So if, if you if you were starting a, a clinic and let's say you were doing injectables, you're looking to go out on your own, where would you be positioning yourself in the market in terms of price and in terms of, I guess, perceived value and in terms of your setup and, and so on, just to give, you know, so, I guess some so advice. Are you yeah. saying just, an, would I just set up an injectable clinic or what sort of clinic? Would yeah, I well, I get that's the majority of people that are listening to, to the podcast. So I guess maybe let's use that as an example. So people that either have their own clinics or looking to have their own clinics, what, yep. would, what would you be doing or what advice would you give them? So, so the number one issue is client acquisition. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's what everyone needs. Now, if you have a look 
at the cost of acquiring a patient who's a Botox filler client through Google AdWords from start to end, it's going to cost you about $250 to acquire a patient. That's the actual cost. Now, to me, it's too expensive to build a patient, to, to to build a business if you are only going through online as your method of picking up customers. Mm. I have always been, and I will always remain a fan of the retail model. To me, the fact that a consumer is already in a shopping center, they're in there with some money in their pocket. They could spend it at a restaurant there. They could spend it at the movies there. They could spend it at a clothing store or a gymnasium, or they could spend it on their Botox. So much of this is a fact that they just simply happen to walk past the clinic. And that's the main reason why Laser Clinics Australia has always been a retail model, because it minimizes the price of client acquisition. That's why the majority of chains are in shopping centers. So my advice to your listeners who are inject disease, have a look at the method of minimizing your patient acquisition costs. Do not go for a very large clinic. Many of them go and get a space of about 150 square meters. It's way too big. Have a look at the minimum amount of space that you need in an area with the most amount of walk-bys. And if you don't want to commit to a lease, see if you can go inside a beauty salon that's got a spare room and put up a sign at the front that says cosmetic injector here. So there are methods around there. I am not a fan of opening up in the seventh floor of an office building. Yeah. yeah. I'm not to criticize you because I know you're thinking from the, the business perspective, but I think with the way regulations are going and just the perception of the industry, I think that the, the parking in the back of a beauty salon is probably mm. not seen as the gold standard anymore. What, what do you think, David? Oh, I, think I know it de- it's allowable. Well, yeah, I think it's it, possible. I think it depends on so many other factors. So who are you? What's your reputation? What kind of salon is it? Um, what's the salon look like? How does it present? Is it a, you know, a high-end sort of salon that sort of provides you know, exclusive kind of treatments at a higher price point? I think there's a lot of variable factors. I think the other factor cons- to consider is word of mouth, which I have always been a massive fan of because it's, the, it's basically free. It is the cheapest yeah. way for you to yeah. refer clients. Agreed, David. But yeah. word of mouth comes after Correct. you've been in business for three years. Yes. So it's how do you how do you get to that point? Yeah. And w- what you want is the path of least resistance to get as many clients as possible. I mean, the obvious thing, and I know it's very difficult to do well. It's social media. Mm. You scream to billions of people for free if you want, and and the more you do it, the more attention you get. And if you do it well, people resonate with your brand and, and yeah. so yeah, on. I, and, I, and I think, uh, Jake, you've got a particularly good Instagram. But if I have a look around, there are hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of providers all on Instagram, TikTok spruiking the exact same thing, which yeah. is, look, I do injectables too. Yeah. It's too hard. See, up to a few years ago, it was really easy to stand out from the crowd. Today, it's all the same. And it's so social media, keep it interesting, keep it relevant, keep yeah. it sharp, keep yeah. it focused, keep it entertaining. You've got to stand out from the crowd. 
and everyone seems to be doing the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah agreed. I mean, and it, yeah. it goes back to the you know the replication of the chain models. They're all the same. So you have to have a point of difference, whether it's in your clinic or your social media, you've got to mm. yeah. do something different. And I think um, people are just, as, as you guys have both said, copying what everyone else is doing. They look at someone else's page. Oh, I'm going to put up a photo of lips. I'm going to put up a photo of the food I've eaten. I'm going to put an inspirational quote up. And, that, and that's my sort of obligatory sort of, um, you know, post, post for the week. They're yeah. not actually thinking about who am I as a person? Yeah. What do I do differently? Yeah. And attracting people who actually want to come and see you. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 Charlie, yeah. yeah. Charlie Chaplin entered a Charlie Chaplin lookalike competition <laughs> and he lost. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the same thing has happened with the clinics. Now I can tell you, Laser Clinics Australia was the very first to do a retail rollout. Today, I look at the other clinics and I think, oh, wow, it's Laser Clinics Australia. But it's not. People have just copied it. Mm. In the end, it's all become, look at me, I'm providing the exact same service. Look at me. There's no independent thoughts. There's no one thinking, wow, how do I do this differently? How do I stand out from the crowd? Yeah. yeah. Can I ask, if, if you were a clinic owner or, or, say, an injector, how would you look at strategies to improve your cash flow? Or, or indeed manage your debt, I guess, is the same question. Well, what things uh, can people do? Well, well, Jack, the first thing I would do is I wouldn't set up a business that's capital heavy. As a cosmetic injector, you could set up a clinic with as little as $30,000. There's yeah. no capital equipment. It's a very – and what I would do is I would have them work as a cosmetic injector two days a week until they built up their client's base, yeah. work in the hospital in the downtime you don't need to be available six days a week you know what are the busy days for injectables thursdays and fridays fridays and saturdays work on those days work in a work in a hospital the rest of the time slowly build up your business you can't go from zero to a hundred in one year except it's going to take you a long time to get to that end point yeah but the most important thing is do not throw your capital away. Make sure you're running at a profit on a daily basis. If you, you know, I know people who've, you know, who've got a clinic open. End of the day, they've turned over seventy dollars, but it's going to cost them, you know, thousand dollars, fifteen hundred to be open for that day, mm. and it, it it doesn't sink into them that you know you you can't have if you have ten of these days, you might as well close your shop. Yeah, yeah. But so. Just managing cash flow and not wanting to be, you know, what I've, what I've noticed with the newer generation, everyone wants to be rich really quickly and they don't realize a percentage of people fail. That's what's going to happen. You want to minimize your chances of failure and don't be too greedy. Don't want it too quickly. Yeah. Work slowly for it, for it and provide great customer service. Um, well, I mean, let, let's use you as an example, uh, Bobak, and I, I know you sort of get very shy when you're talking about your success, so I'll, I'll, I'll try and keep it in, in sort of very high level. But I mean, you, He's you, always talking about his money. What are you talking about? <laughs> 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 Compared to you, Jake. <laughs> Fair play. But, but I mean, you're right. I mean, people want instant success. So if we take your sort of situation, for example, um, you were effectively broke at 40. You, I, I, you, you yeah, had I, had a number of iterations that had failed. And it took yeah. you yeah. a number of years to get to where yeah. you are now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I learned a lesson in humility 
at age 40 because the business that I had before Laser Clinics Australia, there was a business called Australian Laser Clinic, which was very successful. I became arrogant. I thought my success was a result of my doing, not realizing that I was just at the right place at the right time. And I just happened to make money. And I didn't know how to manage that business. I took my eye off the ball and I lost it all. At an age 40 to have to restart is a pretty tough gig. Mm. The lesson I've learned, it was a lesson in humility. Yeah. But I but I learned how to run a business properly. There are, you know, just as there are proper injecting techniques, there are proper money-making techniques. And they go hand in hand. You can't have a successful clinic if you just have great injecting techniques. You need to know how to manage that business. And manage that business means managing your staff, managing your marketing, managing your products, managing your customers, managing your website, managing your branding. All of these go hand in hand, and you've got to know about those. Yeah. What do you guys think about, I don't think I've seen this concept, and maybe maybe I'm giving a business idea away, <laughs> but we've, we've seen shared workspaces with offices and, you know, sort of hot desking, et cetera. What do you think about a sort of hot desking clinic where you effectively had a shared reception, multi-purpose rooms, but effectively injectable rooms, yeah, geared Jake, up for the, injectors the question to... I, the question I pose to you is how do they then generate their customers? Well, that's up to the, that. That's the shared responsibility. So, let's say it's called I don't know Segal Clinic. <laughs> David yeah, yeah. D- d- put some marketing in for almost the location and the services it provides, but then the individual injectors are still driving their own business through Instagram and whatever yeah, it, they like. So it's still going to cost them two hundred and fifty dollars to generate a customer. Right. What I like about that model is that it's not capital heavy. You can walk in there with an investment of zero. You're not committed to your individual lease. And I'm actually a fan of the model if someone wants to try out to see what it's like to set up their own business because it requires none of their own capital. Mm. However, if you want a good, sustainable, long-term brand-builded business, you need to be in your own space. Yeah, I agree. But but we've spoken about stepping stones and, and sort of, you know, starting out, etc. I don't think it's a, a bad no. idea because no. right Great now person. right now the options are go it alone and with huge risk or join a chain clinic with all the constraints and, and low income mm. that come with that or potentially low income. Um, so it's sort of a, a hybrid. It's giving you a bit of control but under a under a roof that's not yours. Yeah, look, in particular, with many of those entities, you can rent a room on a daily basis, half a day basis. Yeah. So you can try it and it costs you nothing. You can keep your other job and do this on a Saturday. Yeah. Uh, it is a great model, but the biggest issue, the single biggest issue any clinic has, how do I generate customers? And generally those models, they just give you the room. They don't give you the... They don't give you the clients. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, that was my Dragon's Den's pitch. So do I get the money? Do I get a million dollars? I thought it was worth more than a million. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> he certainly is not sure, buddy. I, I think there's something there. Like, I was kind of joking, kind of making it up as I go along. But I think a lot of injectors want that 
freedom, flexibility, but they don't want to commit and but they don't they don't know where to go. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there are businesses out there that do that. I know of one called Salon Lane. Yes. And there's a few others that that, that have got a similar model. Um, the the issue is just generating customers that come into there. I've actually looked at Salon Lane because it was just local and I was being nosy. It, it's a lovely place, but it's not an, an aesthetic place. It's a hairdressing place with two mm. injectors who happen to be there. So the yeah. feel is, and, is and, not right. And, and the, and the issue is customers are a lot more savvy yeah. and a lot more credit, clever than we give them credit for. Yeah. The customer who goes into a hairdressing salon will go, well, she'll have a first treatment there, but then she'll think, what am I doing here? Yes. I can go to a specific injector-only clinic and I can get the entire experience yeah. and I feel safer there. Why am I going into hairdressing salon? I know a lot of medical centers over the last 20 years who've tried to get up an injectable practice within their medical center. It has never worked. No. It's never come close to working. Why? Because the patients don't want to see, cosmetic patients don't want to sit next to sick patients. Correct. Or in a medical center. It's about the entire experience. Yeah. Well, I think we've almost seen the chain clinics fall victim to that as well because patients come in there, they're there for their their microdermabrasion or their laser hair removal treatment and they go, oh, injectables. But then they realize once they start learning about the industry that they can go somewhere specific with someone that's potentially more experienced or more bespoke um, overall experience for them as, as a patient. Um, you know, they don't want to smell vaporized uh, bum, bum hair um, when, they're having their bo- when they're having their Botox done. And I think you are seeing people who are starting to move away from from that chain clinic experience to want to go and see someone like a Jake, happy to pay a little bit more because they've now become aware of what's what's available to them. So I think there's a, that's happening already. Well, well, yeah. well David, let, let me uh, let me make my big call. Okay. In ten years' time, the chain clinics will not be market leaders in injectables. Mm. All that all that business will disappear. In fact, it won't it won't take ten years. Things will happen much faster. In five years' time, they will not be the largest providers of injectable treatment in this country. Wow. You've heard it here first. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, is that because of a course correction, that 30% or, or maybe more disappear? No, no I, th- I think better quality injectors will not want to work for the chain clinics. Okay. So the chain clinics are very good at taking new injectors, training them up, but they're not good at retaining them. Yeah. We're so the better now. ones get up. The, the better ones get up and leave. It's just economics. That's what it is. Yeah. And the issue is, and I've dealt with medicos for more than twenty years. They're very big on reputation. They they want to protect their reputation, and their reputation does better for them in in a specialized environment rather than a provider that has. That, that they're providing many services and that just happens to fall under that service. Mm. Yeah, I, I think you could be right. Well, there you go. One of the other uh, topics that we sort of touched on was the, comp- the compliance. We've seen a lot of um, focus on this industry and sort of been ramping up over the last few years and it tends to come in cycles, but we've seen quite a few negative news stories around cosmetic surgery. There mm. was a horror story a couple of years ago with a patient that died at the hands of someone who was pretending to be a doctor um, who then killed a patient with what was a painkiller rather than actual filler, but somehow that ended up becoming a 
uh, like a, almost like a, a, a like a well but the, the the beginning of attack on nurses again yeah. and you talk, I talk to nurses all the time and that is still a fear that a lot of them have around what's going to happen in the industry am I going to be able to inject in the future is my career potentially in jeopardy so I'd be interested to get your thoughts on that Bobak in terms of especially for nurses who now dominate particularly in Australia I, I must confess I don't know what the figure is in other parts of the world but particularly here in Australia it's probably north of 80% now I would say oh yeah so where do you think that's going and is, is this a real risk for people dave i put it on a very low level risk because the purpose of governments in, in healthcare, they're worried about public health responses mm-hmm. they're worried about the public hospitals they're worried about COVID responses they're worried about mass disease they're worried about ambulance wait times in our industry we worry about this topic a lot more because it's topical for us. Mm-hmm. It's not high on the agenda of the government. 20 years ago, when I got into this industry, there was talk at that point that nurses will be banned. It will be doctors only. And it has been the exact same arguments being run by the exact same people. In reality, for the government to change legislation to have nurses not inject Botox, Schedule 4 medication, will mean a significant amount of change to the legislation in other areas. Because currently, nurses are the ones administering medicines in the public hospital system. So if they change it for Botox, they have to carve it out for the public hospital system. It's not an easy system to do. However, let's assume let's assume they do that. One, I don't think they'll do it, but let's assume they do it. The absolute worst-case scenario they will do is that there has to be a doctor present on site. So in terms of the model you're setting up, perhaps you need to be in a location where there is a doctor on site, that you've got to adjust your model, but everyone has to adjust their model. Now, if you've got a turnover of $20,000 a week, you're going to manage to afford to have a doctor on board, maybe with a doctor's doing something else. Maybe he's doing skin cancers on board at the same time. But I don't see the change coming anytime soon. Yeah, uh, we're going to touch on this actually in next week's recording with yeah. Jess and Maria from Tasmania, two, yep. two nurses. So I'll, I'll sort of dangle it, but they have started to see some of regulatory change uh, uniquely to Tasmania, where nurses are still allowed to inject, but the premises and and the license that they have to operate has changed. So that may be a subversive way of the government making it harder for nurses to inject, even if they're still allowed to inject. Yeah. My understanding, Jake, is that there's been no enforcement in regard to the Tasmanian, and it was a press release that got put out rather than a change in legislation. It was more, it was the interpretation of the health department of the existing regulation. Well, we... We'll find out next week, won't we? We will. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I think that concludes a pretty useful chat, actually. Um, yeah, when you when you read the papers and, and you're on social media, like you said, thing, things can be sensationalized, but I do think there is some economic pain or stress at least. And I think, you know, hopefully that, that's provided injectors and listeners with a bit of food for thought and, and maybe things to take into consideration. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Bobak. It's I know you're you're a busy man. You've got lots of things on the go at the moment, multiple renovations and and <laughs> <laughs> spending money is a full time job. Uh, yes, <laughs> and we'd love we'd love to have you back soon. But thank you very much for your time and uh, 
enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Bobby. Gentlemen, I also just look want... forward to episode number four. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Bobby. I just also wanted to shout out our Patreons. Yes. Um, we have been uh, sort of very politely, I guess, advertising our yep. Patreon. If you don't know what a Patreon is, it's a, it's a website where you can show your love and support for anything you like. But we, we have our own Patreon for the podcast. We've got closer to 50 Patreons now. Wow. So thank you for your support. Uh, we really do appreciate it. And um, if you're interested in becoming a Patreon, you can find the, the link on our um, Instagram link. Yep. And we have a private WhatsApp group. We often discuss you know, lots of things which people find valuable. I often share videos and hints and tips. So it's it's not just you giving to us, we give back. Yep. And uh, we've got another project that we're not going to announce now, but it's exciting. your Patreon contributions will be helping for that as well. Absolutely. And just one quick shout out for myself, if you don't mind. Please. Um, I'll be up in Brisbane on Sunday the 4th of December at 11am, probably for the majority of the day. And I am presenting a discussion on business mentoring and advice for people in this industry. If you want to check it out and uh, potentially go and buy a ticket to attend you can go to instagram and look up the account aesthetic underscore nursepreneurs and i'd love to see you all there that's awesome what's the name of the event it is called christmas party with a side of business awesome yeah all right well can i come yeah, why not it's a sunday yeah why not come go, on up. go for a little jolly in brisbane let's do it awesome we'll have a mandate all right bobby <laughs> thank you so much take care thanks Good bobby moment. thank you so much thank you for our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your love and support us on Patreon. 